0: A reading from John 13, verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. "'Do you understand what I have done for you?' he asked them. "'You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. "'Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet.' I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If I turn myself on, it's good to be together as the people of God this morning in this place, as the Billabong in Canning Vale, and um, <clears throat> as a church, we uh, we have this purpose, this reason that we exist—to be disciples who make disciples. And uh, we've been thinking about that and different elements of that in recent months, as we think about what's core and valuable to our church, to us as As a family, and, um, but, but I think at the, at the heart of it is this, this mission that we've been sent out into the world. To, uh, to go and be ambassadors of Jesus, uh, to be representatives of Jesus, to promote Jesus. And, and so as we follow him, we too go out and we help others to follow him, be disciples who make disciples. Um, in a sense, uh, Jesus, <clears throat> with his disciples, as he was preparing them, he scattered them out. He said he, he prepared them. And then they were sent out like scattered servants. And so that's going to be the theme of our, our next couple of months. Um, but the, the, the hope in this time, in this teaching series, is going to be to, to look at how Jesus prepared them for that. Because it's all very well to say, let's go out and be disciples who, make disciples. Let's let's go out in the world and and take his kingdom. Let's go and be scattered out as servants uh, of Jesus. But how did Jesus get them ready for this? How did he prepare them? Well, there's, of course, a whole two or so year journey he took with them. There's uh, key instructions, commissions we know and we've thought a lot about in, in recent times, the Great Commission. But... In John's Gospel is this beautiful uh, five chapters towards the very end where Jesus sits down with these 12 guys, maybe a few more around as well, his disciples, and he prepares them in those final hours. And of course, the the final words someone says, they're very important, right? They hold a lot of weight. And in some of the Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, we have a a lot uh, shorter kind of instructions like the Great Commissions. But in John's Gospel, these five chapters of sitting down, talking with them, a whole dialogue, interacting and preparing them to be... The people who would take his love out into the world as scattered servants, and so that's what we're going to look at. Um, I want to encourage you because we're not going to preach our way through every single verse of John thirteen to seventeen. So I want to encourage you to go home and read it, and read it again, and read it again, and and capture. Uh, ask God to allow you to capture His heart in this, and and what Jesus was really doing with His disciples. So this this final discourse, John thirteen to 17. Before we jump into uh, that first uh, part of that, let's let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning together as your people we gathered here to be prepared by you, Lord Jesus, to be your disciples. And I pray that the servant heart that you displayed would be transferred onto us this morning that we would be your scattered servants in the world bringing your love, your kingdom, Uh, your life to the places and spaces in which we are, that we would be a blessing to those around us, that we would bring life to the city, to our neighbourhoods, to our schools and our workplaces. Prepare us for this in these coming weeks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this whole discourse, Jesus' final preparation for his disciples, begins with what we read this morning, What Heather read this morning and it begins like this. John writes Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is a description of what's happening in his preparation of the disciples. He loved them to the end. Do you know Do you know that Jesus loves you and that he will continue to love you as you follow him, no matter what, all the time, to the end, in all things, I just... I read this and go, what a way to start this whole dialogue. As the time drew near for Jesus to leave, he loved them to the end. Not that he was preparing them in these final hours and so he had a commissioning service. Right? That's not his preparation. Not he offered a final debrief on all of his training. Not, here's the Holy Spirit to empower you. Although, yes, that comes later. But this is the way his final preparation for them to be sent out is described as love. He loved them to the end. How amazing is that? Do you know how much he loves you until we do you and I won't truly be prepared and, and ready to bring the kingdom into the places and spaces around you. This is how Jesus prepares us. He loves us. Here then is how this great love is displayed or expressed. In, in verses 2 to 5, it's about Jesus washing their feet. He poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. Love was to be his final preparation for his disciples. Serving them was the means by which that love was expressed. Jesus was ultimately preparing them to bring the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. That's a a big deal, to bring his kingdom to the whole world. Here he's showing them what that looks like. Love expressed through humble service. And this is and always has been countercultural right like we constantly as human beings we constantly seek to make our way up the food chain you know increase status and increase wealth and increase security and if it 's business or a cause we 're behind, we bring the product or the idea or the purpose of that thing to others and try to get them on board so we will benefit and and keep moving up up up. To serve is the complete opposite, to place yourself beneath and meet the needs of the other without agenda, without reward. And Jesus is modelling this right here. He puts himself in the place of the lowest rank, The, 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 the uh, the one who is in that room going to wash the feet, the dirty, smelly feet that have been walking around the streets, is the one with the lowest rank. So they have to do the dirtiest job. Jesus puts himself there, giving himself that least glorious job and does that and, and says, yes, I'm your teacher. Yes, I'm your master, the one with the highest standing. So if I've flipped that and become the lowest the servant, then you do the same for each other. Now, I've thought a lot about uh, how this goes together with the Great Commission. It doesn't negate or, or, or rule out the, the Matthew 28, go and make disciples, or, or Mark 16, go and preach the gospel. These are one and the same, just expressed in a different way. Uh, if my mind, though, is, is shaped by the culture, promote your thing, build your thing, rise up the food chain, then the risk is I turn Jesus into a product. Jesus is my thing, the thing I'm trying to promote, that I'm taking to people to try and convince them, and then that kind of makes me feel good, like I've achieved something. And yet Jesus' final preparation for the disciple-making, gospel-preaching mission of Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and everything else Is that he would send his disciples out to love through humble service. Maybe you feel this tension. I don't know if you think about this, and maybe as you reflect in the coming weeks, you've got we've been we have been called into the world to to preach the gospel and to make disciples, to bring others into that saving relationship and knowledge of, of Jesus, which cannot be reduced down to this kind of. Uh, just a kindness without the call to repent and believe. Um, We have this sort of often misquoted Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary, and yet the gospel does require words. That is the reality. But it's not just that. This servant posture will be what transforms the message that we carry from just a belief people would like us to keep to ourselves, because that's often the case, right? Well, it's your religion. That's your belief. we will transform it from that to beautiful good news. Beautiful good news. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2. Our lives are like a crust-like fragrance. Heard this before? Like a sweet smell rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved than those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are the dreadful smell of death and doom, but to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. It's a metaphor referring to when the Romans would parade through the streets after a military victory, and they would burn incense. That smell of the incense was, to the Romans, the sweet smell of victory. It was a good smell, but to the captives or the victims, that smell was the smell of death and defeat. To one, the smell of uh, sweet incense, and to others, the smell of death. It's true that lives—that if our lives are a sweet fragrance to God, some will reject that. But the point of this passage, if we just put that back up for a second, um, the point of this is not, just to, it's not to reinforce a mindset that, oh, well, some people are just destined to reject Jesus and we can't do anything about that. That's not the point. It's not what Paul's getting at. The point is, be a sweet fragrance. Be a sweet fragrance. Paul goes on and says, And who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity. With sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Think, just think about this for a second. A message, a gospel, a a, a news of sacrificial love. Christ loved, something like this, Christ loved you so much, loves you so much that he took your sin and died for you in your place so that you could have abundant and eternal life. This message of, of sacrificial love delivered by people demonstrating servant-hearted, sacrificial love. You imagine the beauty of that, that, how that becomes a sweet fragrance and not the stench of death. So how might you and I, how might you serve your workplace, your, your neighbourhood, go low to serve the people in your school, to be a scattered servant sent into the world to be like Jesus, to be a servant to others. I want to think for a second about a couple of ways we might do this. Maybe there's things come to mind. How can I serve uh, and take this posture that Jesus took in the places or spaces that I hang out? Uh, but I think a great place to start is by using the creativity that God's given you. Actually have some fun. Amen? Amen? <laughs> let's have some fun. Use the, the, the creativity that you have. Find a way that to serve, to bless, to to, to, to go low and to to, to serve others for no reward that comes out of how God has created you. And find that out. This is one of the reasons I want to encourage you to come next Sunday. Kaya is brilliant at helping people find this out for themselves. Um, Karen and I have had the opportunity to serve our neighbours by making good coffee and brekkie for them once a fortnight um, alongside some friends. I've mentioned this before. This is a picture from a while ago of us doing this. We had one yesterday. It started as an experiment. And for us, it's motivated by the chance to build relationships, look for opportunities to share Jesus. But what struck me in the last 11 months is the power of the simple act of serving for no reward and how people respond to that. The response some people have is almost almost unsettling. They're so used to there being an exchange. You know, if you do something for me, i do something for you. If you do a service, I have to pay you for it. That's the way it works as we try to, try to achieve better lives for ourselves. That's, that's the way society goes. Sometimes people will literally refuse to accept a coffee or a brekkie burger, which is what we do, if they don't have any cash that helps cover the cost. No, no, I can't, I can't take it. I can't pay you for it. That's the sort of natural response. But there's something that happens when a person is simply served. Not because they paid for it or they earned it, just just because. I think the kingdom comes a little bit. A softness of heart emerges in the person. The way the world works is put aside for just a few seconds and that can be created using our creativity having some fun with it what do you have how's god wired you that you can give freely that will genuinely bless others in a particular environment workplace neighborhood street school etc get creative have some fun in case you didn't know making good coffees is fun for me like i, I don't have oh, i have to do this again like it's <laughs> it's it's a joy I just don't imagine Jesus if I can if I'm perfectly honest I just don't imagine Jesus putting the towel around his waist getting down on his knees with this look on his face like oh this is disgusting Peter what have you been walking in today where have you guys been look I'm just doing this so you'll see what it means to serve and then hopefully you'll do it again you know do this I just don't imagine Jesus with that kind of attitude about this in fact I was reading the chapter before John 12 And we read about Mary pouring a very expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet in that chapter and wiping his feet with her hair, a passionate expression of love and service. And and Jesus praises her saying, this is symbolic of anointing in preparation, preparation for burial. I wonder, this is not a sort of biblical exegesis I've done, this is just a a wondering. If Jesus at that point, when Mary poured the perfume on his feet, was so moved by that act that he began to wonder, oh, this is so beautiful. How can I, she served me in such a a, a selfless way. I wonder if he was wondering, how can I creatively demonstrate love through service to my followers? how can I do this? Oh, I know. The lower servant washes the feet when the people first come in. I'll do that. And I'll just show the joy to my brothers of of placing myself last. And then hopefully they'll catch that and then do that. I, I wonder if that was what was going on. That it wasn't this, oh, I've got to do this. So be creative. Have some fun. But also, this is the more challenging one. Consider the opportunities God puts right in front of us. How do we learn to become and more and more become scattered servants with the heart of Jesus? The opportunities God puts right in front of us that teach us to be servants. Now, I personally usually assume that an inconvenience, a difficulty, a painful circumstance is something I've got to just try and push through and avoid, and if all else fails, complain, right? Now, often it's to do with kids. They leave the house looking like a tornado came through the door. They refuse to eat their dinner and then at bedtime say, I'm hungry, or whatever else. My first response is to change things or do something or just whinge, when in actual fact, maybe God's giving me a gift because in that moment, I can learn to go low and to be a servant. And I forget, conveniently, that, I, that the day before I prayed, Father, make me more like Jesus. And now an opportunity to do something that's not glorious and not glamorous and a little painful. On a more serious note, because you know, kids complaining is not that big of a deal, but on a more serious note, when there are circumstances, especially when those close to me are in pain, something's going on with the kids, they're up in the middle of the night and sick or whatever the case may be. When stuff happens that is painful, it requires extra time and attention and care and effort and I've got things to do and it's it's not easy. We tend to go, God, please remove this trial. God, would you... Get rid of this circumstance when in actual fact, maybe God's giving me an opportunity in that moment. Hey, Luke, you get to be like my son in this situation. To do the non-glamorous, humble work of a servant. Paul writes in Romans 8, And we know that in all things God works for the... Good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We love that verse. God's got a good plan in all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Even if it's something uh, hard, he'll, he'll turn it around for good. He'll even turn it around for our good. And it's true. He will. It's a promise. But what is the good that Paul's talking about? How does God define good? It's in the next verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. He'll use your trial, your painful circumstance for good. How? By lowering you to the status of servant so he can conform you to the image of his son. What trial, what circumstance that you see as just suffering and pointless might actually be God's way of helping you become a scattered servant who will bring the kingdom of God to the world? Jesus shows his disciples the posture of a servant in this foot-washing interaction Saying, "This is how you go into the world to bring my kingdom, to bring my love." But to 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 finish up, and you know, one final reflection from this passage. What, notice the response that Peter has. Right at first, it's confusion. Well, Jesus, uh, are you gonna are you gonna wash my feet? That that that's. Jesus says, yes, I'm gonna wash your feet. And then Peter says, No way. That's not how it should be. No, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said, uh, Jesus, and then Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Another translation says, You you do not belong, you, you cannot belong to me. And that's not the end of the conversation. Most studies then kind of focus on. The feet washing versus cleansing of the whole body thing. Jesus says, you, you know, only your feet need washing because, because Peter said, well, wash all of me then. Right, There's a, we come back to that. But what's happening here in this, this, this part? Peter says, no, you shouldn't wash my feet. Jesus, yes, I have to. You can't wash my feet, Jesus. You shan't wash my feet, Jesus. What's the subtext here? What's Peter really saying? Have you thought about this? Is he saying, they stink, and I don't want to put you through that? You, know, you don't know the poop I had to chop tr- through today? I'm embarrassed. No, no, no. Is he saying, no, 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 Jesus, let me. I, I got this, right? Just give me the towel. Sort of like a false humility thing. No, I think this is the subtext. I've not earned that. I've not earned that. Jesus. Becoming the foot washer is about placing oneself beneath and treating the other as honoured, higher, deserving. And Peter's saying, I don't deserve that. And Jesus is saying, exactly. Exactly. See, this is the gospel being played out. Jesus is saying to Peter, if you'll only accept my love and my devotion to you, my care for you, my pouring out blessing on you when you deserve it, then there's a problem. You won't be able to belong to me because you'll never deserve it. But if you let me wash your feet, treat you as honoured, Beloved, deserving, special, recognized when you've done absolutely nothing to deserve it, then you'll never be tempted to think that anything you could do would make me, would make you any more or less deserving of my love, would make me love you any more or less. Yeah, you don't deserve it. That's why you need to receive it now. Friends, I'm convinced that the greatest preparation. For ministering the love, for us to be able to minister the love of Jesus, the gospel to others, the greatest preparation for becoming scattered servants, carriers of the kingdom of God, is having Jesus wash our feet. In other words, receiving his love, letting him serve you, honour you, becoming an undeserving recipient of grace and love. When our worth is not tied in any way to whether we've earned it, then we can walk through life completely secure in his love. And we'll never hesitate to go low and then serve others because we know we've not earned any honour or privilege. It's all a gift, so I've got nothing to lose. I've only got Jesus' love to give. In the interaction between Jesus and Peter, Jesus, as it goes on and said, those whose bodies are clean, they don't need only their feet washed. You don't need to get saved again and again and again. Uh, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have been washed clean. That's symbolised in your baptism. But we do need to keep coming back to Jesus, letting him wash our feet again and again, a fresh receiving of his love that we understand is completely undeserved. It's my goal each Sunday when I preach to try to serve you. I can't think of any better way to do that than to create space to help each one of us meet face-to-face with God and receive his love afresh. That's all I know how to do. Here's how the Bible says we can do that, how we can meet with God and receive his love for ourselves, be in that position where Jesus is just loving us. Here's how the Bible says we can do that. We approach God's throne of grace. This is one of the most incredible, scandalous things in all the Bible. I want to finish with this, this this reflection on, on, on this amazing privilege we have. See, once upon a time, only one designated person, the high priest, was able to get even close to the presence of God. I don't know if you've read any of this in the Old Testament, but this is how it worked. Only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies and go even close to God because God is so holy, so perfect, so pure, so good, so brilliant that if we human beings even got close, even caught a glimpse of his brilliance, we'd perish Because we are unholy, we are imperfect, we are not good like he is, and holiness and imperfection, sin, cannot coexist. God would cease to be God. So God made a way for sin to be atoned for, dealt with. That is, the people's sin was transferred onto a lamb, which was sacrificed, and the blood of that Lamb which the high priest would sprinkle as he cautiously, fearfully entered the Holy of Holies to intercede for the people, asking, seeking the forgiveness of sin for the people. This is the way it worked. But it's as close as anyone got to ever being with God, together in his presence, despite all of humanity's efforts to get To God through piety and personal holiness and ritual and religious devotion and sacrifice, the gap remained. The gap remained until instead of us trying and trying to make our way up to God, God came down to us, humbled himself, went lower, became a servant, gave up his life even unto death, the sacrificial this time perfect lamb. And then rising from the grave, he, Jesus, became our perfect high priest, entering the presence of the holy God, his blood and atonement for our sins. But here's the beautiful thing about all of this. Those who belong to him. He said to Peter, you need to belong to me. Right, Those who belong to him, are associated with him, are with him, are in him. Those who have accepted him as their sacrificial lamb, who paid for their sins, who, uh, the, the one who came low to wash their feet. Now, those who belong to him need not approach the throne of God on their own merit, as if we've got to match up. But they approached the throne of God belonging to him, linked to him, with him, with Jesus. So how then does the writer of Hebrews say that we can approach the throne of God, the presence of God, the pure and perfect and good God? How how do we approach God's throne of grace? Here's, Here's how, friends, we can approach God's throne of grace. Ready? Let me do that again because it wasn't quite embarrassing enough for me. (laughs) Here's how we can approach God's throne of grace. With confidence. Boldly, other translations say. Boldly, we can approach the Father. We are... Undeserving, so undeserving, and yet that's exactly the place in which he allows us to come to him freely and boldly because it's in the name of Jesus. That means linked to with belonging to Jesus, not in our own merits, with his merits. And in that place, boldly approaching the Father, face to face with our Father, he bends down like a father does with a son or a daughter and says what do you need what do you want we'll come back to that bit in a future week I love you so let us come this morning boldly to the Father saying God I can only be sent into the world as your servant if I receive your love as I said the only thing I know how to do is just to create space for us to Meet with God to love him and let him love us.